You are listening to the UCHRI podcast. This is Allison Anunziata, Research Programs Manager. Today we bring you another talk bit in our series interrogating the concept of civil war, a robust series that over the past year has resulted in conversations on biomedicine, digital interfacing, political civility, among other diverse subjects, layer by layer revealing all this concept has to offer. In this installment, Karen Kaplan, author of the book Aerial Aftermaths and professor of American Studies at UC Davis, unpacks the history of aerial technology and warfare. In her book and in our conversation, she underscores the dangerous and often deadly limits of perception, the precariousness of seeing from above, and helps us trace the intricate web that binds war to our everyday life. What do you think of when you think of civil war? When I think of civil war, I think of an opportunity to deconstruct a longstanding apparent division between battlefields that are far away and battlefields that are closer to home. We think of civil war usually as an outbreak of violence within the nation state, classically. Um, but I think that using the term as a tool in an energetic way gives us a chance to understand that wars that are far away and conflicts within the nation state are usually connected in some way. Uh, and that, that, that's extremely fruitful to explore those connections because they reveal the underpinnings of violence in general, state violence in particular, but also all kinds of violence um, in the home, outside of the home, outside of the nation, as well as within. So in that sense, I think it's a really exciting opportunity. And is civil war the only dichotomy at play? Civil war is one way of thinking about it. We could also think about it as a way to explore the domestic. You know, at the end of the first Persian Gulf War, Beatrice Kalamina published a piece that called Domesticity in War that was really um, inspirational and provocative for feminists uh, and others working in related fields because she said that war today speaks about the difficulty of establishing the limits of domestic space. Mm -hmm. And I think establishing the limits of domestic space is really what a lot of feminist inquiry has been all about. One of the important works of the 1990s was um, uh, no more separate spheres, thinking uh, about deconstructing the line between private and public. And I think that um, that method and that kind of inquiry, when we apply it to warfare and to state violence um, and to um, inequalities of power that lead to really drastic forms of um, exclusion, separation, uh, removal, as well as death, um, that when we apply it in that way, um, we come to understand power dynamics in a really uh, useful way. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're just papering over or masking um, the way uh, power and politics works in the world. So, uh, so the opportunity to think about the civil, the domestic, as opposed to the public, uh, and uh, official warfare um, seems uh, really germane, especially today. Um, after globalization um, and the sort of more advanced phases of neoliberalism, 
uh, the way the world is connected by global media, by um, um, all the forms of transportation and mobile forms of capital, people moving around, goods moving around, um, it becomes, some of these divisions become very um, diffuse. But we don't want to say that everything is all the same uh, and that everything is reduced to the same or that um, there are no actual national divisions. I mean, in the United States today, to say such a thing is absurd when families are being torn asunder and incarcerated all around border issues. Uh, refugees are being turned away from countries um, in Europe. So, uh, so it's not to say that those borders don't exist, but that um, in order to understand exactly how to address when borders become hardened and when they become weaponized and militarized, we have to really start to unthink some of the terms we've inherited from political science um, and other fields that are, really are no longer useful. Um, heuristically for um, understanding the world today. How do engines of war, like the military, feed or inform the civil sphere? I'm really interested in the history of um, technology in relation to the military. Um, we tend to think that um, things trickle down from the military, that the military is able to fund research and development, and then the rest of us civilians get the crumbs as they sort of filter down. Um, and um, I think that there's a lot to be said for that model, but I also think it's way more complicated than that. And how technologies actually come about um, involves so many people and so many institutions so I'm very grateful to the way science and technology studies has brought us more awareness of the um, power dynamics inside laboratories, the way engineering spreads itself around. I mean, what are we to, to make of the Army Corps of Engineers? You know, they're both, they do lots of civilian stuff, but they're also uh, come out of, you know, they're also strongly connected to the military. Many of the most powerful um, uh, generals and even military uh, uh, personnel who've gone very high in administrations, even becoming presidents, have come out of the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, so what do you do with an entity like the Army Corps of Engineers? We don't have enough books about them. Um, you know, you can get a standard social history, but I mean, we need to understand the, the, the actual individuals, the figures, um, how they moved in and out of military academies into private enterprise. To use terms like the military industrial complex doesn't even begin to get at it, but we have to start with that and then think about how people and ideas circulate and move around in and out of military and non-military institutions, um, research projects, um, design projects, and then we have a really tangled knot that I think is very, very difficult to undo. It's not trickling down, it's like <laughs> um, embedded, tangled, woven, uh, uh, and very difficult to extricate. I don't mean that in a defeatist way. I actually get excited by that because if you like start pulling at one of the threads, you find out, well, how was milk, you know, how is the production of milk move in, you know, become like a military factor or tin cans or um, buttons, um, all sorts of everyday objects. To me, once I began to actually study the military and not just security or not just surveillance, but taking the military seriously as an engine of civil society, 
not only military life um, and warfare. Uh, I uncover all kinds of things and I wish that we had more interdisciplinary research projects that would follow along the similar lines. There's lots of people working on this now, but we need tons more because it's such a huge part of exactly of everyday life. Are there aspects of civil society that escape war's influence? We can't hold ourselves apart from the military. No, not at all. And I know so many people who are, don't want to study it or prefer to use other terms. Um, but I think that um, going smack into the military um, allows you to get back out of it almost very quickly because you see it's almost like it's so porous in a certain way. And again, I don't mean to imply it doesn't have its own distinct traditions and histories and it isn't, um, uh, um, um, you know, <laughs> an operation of mass murder you know, on a global scale in and of itself. But um, structurally, uh, in relation to the state and in relation to the way industrial capitalism has um, developed over many hundreds of years, I, if you go into the military, you don't stay there. You immediately go back out uh, and then have to come back in. So for me, it's a great, it's a great um, center of gravity, I guess, for, for research. Uh, which is not to say other centers of gravity are not also equally important, but I think it's been ignored to some degree by progressive um, um, uh, theorists and, and scholars, um, especially um, until fairly recently, most feminists, um, as something, you know, if we were against the military, simply, uh, as opposed to we simply, we really, there's, to me, there's nowhere else given what I care about there's nowhere else for me to go. I have to study this. Uh, so um, uh, so I, I find that energizing. I, I have to study really sad things all the time. When you study air war, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking and um, really challenging at times. Um, but how can I hold myself apart from something that my country is so deeply um, engaged in and has such a long-standing um, connection to, um, it it's, um, would be cowardly and um, an act of just unimaginable privilege to turn away. Uh, so um, so I, I feel, um, since you're giving me an opportunity to reflect on this, I guess I would have to say I feel kind of honored and excited by the kind of work that a term like civil wars, unpacking civil wars, and critical military studies in general um, makes, makes possible. How does the logic of targeting connect the domain of marketing to war? Some of what we're noticing in the present moment has very, very long antecedents. And, um, and those uh, connections are primarily due to the history of colonialism and um, the occupation of areas outside of Europe by European powers. And I've been especially interested since I study air power and um, aerial warfare in particular, um, in looking at the history of um, the um, air attacks on civilian populations between the two world wars, in particular in uh, Iraq. Um, and in that case, uh, during the British mandate, the uh, newly formed Royal Air Force um, dropped many, many tons of bombs on um, civilian populations in an effort to quell 
what they perceived to be unrest or rebellions. It was rebellions against um, forms of taxation and various new kinds of political organizations that were a change from the previous Ottoman um, Empire's form of organization, where, which there was also resistance to. Um, uh, but the British chose to um, address this by uh, using air power. And they did it in a particularly violent and um, egregious way that um, basically it boiled down to firebombing. So um, villages that primarily were composed of uh, reed huts were um, set aflame. Um, and they did it deliberately at nighttime because they wanted the flames to be seen at a great distance um, as a warning uh, to the population what would happen if they didn't adhere to British um, mandate administration uh, and practices. Um, you know, this is a, a really terrible history and you can't really unthink it once you know about it in relation to the history of air wars conducted by Britain, the United States and allies in the same location years later. Um, there's just such a long-standing history and there's similar stories from a similar time period in Afghanistan and the Afghan Pakistani border. So um, I think that one of the things that that tells me is that if I'm interested in something like how unmanned aerial vehicles are used to both target and also deliver weapons against very specific targets now, it's very precise and it has all kinds of fancy sensing apparatus in the present moment. But the entire ideolog ideological support for doing this has been established, you know, close to 100 years previously, certainly during World War I and just after. And that matters, um, that really matters, because otherwise we can't possibly understand the targeting practices of today. Um, they were much cruder um, uh, in terms of precision, although they aimed for the precision that their technologies made available to them in that time period. But it's a very, um, um, the structure of legitimation and rationale for the murdering of civilians is extremely sim similar. And these civilians happen to not be white Europeans or white Americans. So, uh, so there's a very profound racial component that's tied to Orientalism and other practices coming out of the 19th century. So, um, so that's something I try to bring to the study of air power today, and of course, increasingly space power, um, because um, those histories um, absolutely can't be forgotten and have to inform what we do in the present moment. How does the proliferation of autonomous aerial weapons either reproduce or, or disrupt the modernist narrative of a God's eye view? I began by... Um, accepting the idea that there was a unified God's eye view that we can associate with the modern period and that um, it instigates warfare because it has a, uh, makes a distinct separation between the person who is looking and what is being looked at, you know, classic object relations. What I found once I started doing my research was that the God's eye view is not as hegemonic and unified as it may seem uh, in the modern period. And in fact, one reason I was drawn to study um, ballooning in the 18th century is that 
Although sometimes people expressed um, their ideas about the view as a God's eye view or a master overview, that in the records of the actual aeronauts, the people who really flew for the very first time in hot air or hydrogen balloons, they did not know what they were seeing. It was complete chaos. They were terrified or they were like really preoccupied making sure the balloon didn't crash and kill them. Um, they were, they had flasks. They were like trying to capture clouds in glass jars. They were very busy uh, and they, they, they were mostly meteorologists. They were really interested in weather. Um, so when they were able to notice the view, the thing that they noticed was that they couldn't see, they couldn't figure out what they were looking at. It was such a new view and it wasn't the same as, being on a hill or a high mountain or even a large high tower. It was really so altered and abstract that it was frightening and confusing. And so I went looking for masterful gazes and I found accounts uh, across the period from aeronauts themselves when they were write down their experiences that indicated just the opposite. It didn't take very long for the ideology of this God's eye view that, that came from Christianity and from um, medieval materials and things. It was already an ideological structure, as Dennis Cosgrove has um, outlined so amazingly with such erudition in his work. Uh, uh, it was already there to be sort of grabbed onto and applied once you actually fly. And I think that that's what happened. It became sort of sutured, the ideological um, uh, elements became um, sutured to the experiences and people learned to see that way but it wasn't there from the beginning so I started looking for other instances of confusion <laughs> from the view from the air and there, you know, there's plenty uh, and then even people will contradict themselves and they'll go I don't know what I'm looking at it's so strange and they're, they're the wrong colors and sound is altered everything is weird and they'll go oh but the view from above really gives us that we really puts everything into perspective so it's a it's a powerful ideology and I feel curious about that so I guess what I have found that's really interesting to me is that there are echoes of this in the way that we talk about something like a drone because people imagine that drones are this camera that you know is taking a perfect picture, um, and it is the most um, highly evolved um, technological um, um, uh, achievement uh, in the history of aerial imagery. But actually, it's just a big sensing device, and it just sends a lot of data back to computers, and they kind of put it all together. Uh, and make a picture out of it. And so along the way, there's all kinds of, and all as there always is when you're dealing with computers and digital uh, information, there's, 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 um, there, there's trouble. Uh, there's trouble, there's contradiction, there's unevenness, there's failure. Uh, and um, these are assembled systems and lots can, lots can happen. So uh, we have to take the images with a grain of salt, the Im images that result with a grain of salt. People's lives depend on these images and these sensing practices. Um, people die because of the interpretation of these images all the time. But they're very dynamic images, they're in real time, uh, and um, they are very hard to understand in many ways. And so the interpreters have to work for a very long time as photographic interpreters always do to try to understand what they're looking at. 
So I think that one of the most important things to do in the present moment is to just continually stress the constructed nature of all visual materials, especially in digital uh, formats, and to um, maintain a, a healthy skepticism about the objective reality of what appears in such imagery. Uh, and then we can follow through and think about what kind of policies and practices we want to have in relation to the way these images are generated. They look incredibly realistic. And so do satellite images that were used in the Cuban Missile Crisis or any kind of, any aerial imagery that's used to justify warfare is at the moment in which it's produced perceived to be the best, most accurate, most precise, most incredible um, imaging technology possible which becomes superseded, you know, <laughs> soon after that by something else. Um, so there's always something else. Um, there's always more to perceive. But perception is full of gaps, omissions, errors, failures. So I think it's a, I think the history of aerial vision is just a great reminder. It's a cautionary tale um, that we can't always believe what we see or what we sense or what we perceive uh, and that we need to be very, very, very careful about operationalizing the ideology of the, of the God's idea. This podcast is brought to you by UCHRI in connection with our Horizons of the Humanities Initiative, which is generously funded by the Mellon Foundation. For more interventions on the subject of civil war, visit Foundry, UCHRI's platform for experimentation in the humanities at uchri.org slash foundry.